so much for joining us. Blair Bingham, well, Blair's a friend, but Blair's more than that. Blair's uh, an intensivist, an eMERGE doc. He's just telling me about his trials and tribulations on his last eMERGE shift. Maybe we'll get into that. A journalist, a fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs, and the author of the very provocatively titled and very timely Death Interrupted. Blair, thanks so much for interrupting your day to find some time with us. It's a great book. It is my pleasure, Peter. Thank it's you. It's a great book. Sorry to stumble over your words, but I need to get the compliments out. It's, it's, <laughs> it's needed. It's wanted. Uh, and as we were just discussing by both lay and uh, professional people alike, um, what is it? Why did you write it? And uh, where do we need to go as a society? Yeah. Uh, wow. Where do we start? Uh, Death Interrupted uh, started off as just a, a couple of observations as a medical student, as a resident. I guess it even started before that, Peter, back when I was a paramedic. Um, just watching the way we use technology to save people's lives. And you know, when you start off as a paramedic, you're like lights and sirens, running into buildings, defibrillating people. You're not really thinking about why you're doing it. You're doing it because that's what you're trained to do. You just apply machines to people when they're dying. But as I went through my career and, and evolved from paramedicine into being an emergency doctor and then an ICU doctor, I began realizing that sometimes that technology, even though we apply it in good faith, ends up being harmful, right? We get to this point, and I think everyone who works in healthcare has come to this point before, where they go, oh, this is not going to work. We're doing things to another person, but we know, you know, the writing's on the wall. This person's not going to survive. And eventually, we all kind of get on the same page. Eventually, we, you know, become brave enough to speak to families and, and admit to them that we failed. We don't have the science. We don't have the technology. We don't have the knowledge to save this person's life. Their physiology is too far gone. Of course, most families accept that. They trust us. They understand the situation. And then we're able to focus on making the end of life meaningful, tolerable, sometimes even beautiful. And, you know, when I started doing this, once that decision, you know, to be a DNR or to be comfort care or to be palliative care occurred, I became dissatisfied. I lost interest in that person's life because I was trained to save it, not help it come to a close. But through some incredible mentorship and opportunity, I came to realize that sometimes that's when I do my very best work, after the opportunity to save a life has come and gone. And so this book sort of evolved from that organic journey uh, through the first 10 years of my career. Um, and it, it changed me very much when I realized that resuscitating someone is just as valuable as palliating someone. And in our system, both where I trained in the United States and here in Canada, that decision to transition from resuscitation to palliation to abandon machines and technology and focus on humanity is one that is made with great variability. Um, and, and I think that that means some people lose out on a good death. Hmm. Blair, I'll just jump in here quickly. Death Interrupted, absolutely brilliant title. I read your book. Uh, I went back to the bookstore, bought a second copy, gave it to a friend. Um, this is a heavy, difficult subject to deal with. Um, now you have a very colorful past, <laughs> if, I, if I may, um, that obviously prepared you very well 
um, to be in a position to write about this uh, subject and, 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 you know, paint it in a book. Um, tell us a little bit more about your background and, and how you got to then making this decision to, to pursue the book. When I was three months old, I was thrown into a lake in northern Ontario and expected to swim uh, by my father. Uh, I took to water like a fish and eventually, you know, went through all the swimming lessons to become a lifeguard. Um, And as a lifeguard, I met a couple of paramedics. They were idols to me, these people who would show up with lights and sirens in uniform and whisk away my patient. Um, And so I pursued that as a career and became a paramedic. And, and at some point along the way became, I guess, a little bit disillusioned because a lot of what I was doing wasn't treating anaphylaxis and ventricular fibrillation. I was seeing a lot of social medicine situations, situations for which I did not have a cure. And I would drop them off at the emergency department and I'd move on with my day. That um, bothered me to the point where, as a paramedic now, I was idolizing the emergency doctor. Lifeguard idolizes paramedic, paramedic Mm -hmm. idolizes emergency doctor. And so I said, ah, if I'm an emergency doctor, I can fix all of these problems. And then in in very short order in residency, realized that the emergency department in many ways is also a revolving door, just as I was feeling as a paramedic. And so I realized that in order to to help the people that I wanted to be able to serve, uh, I needed a different skill set. I needed a skill set that wasn't in medicine because medicine is bound by so much political chains that you really hmm. can't do much as a physician outside of prescribe and suture and comfort. And so I went to journalism school and at journalism school, learned a whole new way of thinking, a whole new way of investigating problems, and a whole new way of communicating. And so I brought that skill set into my medical practice and work very hard now at what I'll call health advocacy, although we could spend a whole podcast just dissecting what we mean by that. But I think most commonly we would call it health advocacy or science communication, this idea of communicating complex subjects uh, with the public. And certainly dying in an ICU or dying um, on 14 different pills that you take twice a day or dying uh, in a hospital is a very complex subject. And it lent itself very well to being able to explore it more deeply than in, say, a news article or a magazine essay, and Death Interrupted was born. Mm-hmm. Now, in your book, you you also allude to the progression of death being um, not something we're used to anymore. Mm. Um, you know, there's there's a, a good few reasons why people are immensely uncomfortable with with death, and I, I believe it's very early on in your book that you explore this. This sort of is it like it's like a new phenomenon in a way. This didn't used to happen where we had people. I'll be frank here and just say being kept alive past their uh, expiry date, so to speak. And that's because we didn't have the machines to do it. If you weren't breathing, if you were severely brain injured, if you had a terrible ejection fraction, you were just going to die. It didn't matter what I did or Peter did or Leon did. Like Nobody could help you. You were just going to die. And so you didn't even go to the hospital half the time. You just died at home in your bed on your couch and you were surrounded by your family. And in, in, in that process, family members saw death. It was personal. It happened at home. It was like your last hurrah. You were teaching others how to die. And now nobody sees family members die. They die in nursing homes. They die in hospitals. They, they die in institutions. They don't die 
at home. If, I mean, if they die at home, 911 gets called and they get whisked away to the hospital. It, we don't have natural deaths occurring in the home anymore. And, and that's fine. But the consequence of that is that nobody knows what death is or what it looks like anymore. And so everyone's become very afraid of it. And so I think we've created these conditions now in society because of the advancement of technology, which I should add right now saves a lot of lives and is a good thing. That's why I'm an ICU doctor. Um, But that advancement has created these conditions where physicians and families alike are afraid to accept when the end has arrived. Mm -hmm. Peter, I've been... uh, No, no, no. It's an incredibly important topic and in fact deserves a little bit of reflective silence rather than just people crashing in with questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Blair, you've dedicated this book. I mean, you've you've thanked the good and the great and many of your mentors um, who most of us know as fellow Canadian intensivists. A shout out to Randy and shout out to all sorts of other people that you mentioned. But you've also, I think, dedicated it to your patients as well. Your, your opening statement is for those that let me into their lives when everything is crashing down around them. And I think yeah. this journey that you go on from paramedic, you know, you open the book by by saying it was easy to call people dead. In fact, it was easy to call people dead, dead. You use the, the term itself <laughs> and then you talk about uh, policy 4-4 and how easy this was to do and how we are now in this strange liminal state where people are not alive and not dead but stuck in the midst and all the confusion that goes on with that. You also talk about the death dilemma equation, which Mm -hmm. uh, has really resonated locally and as a fact you'll be pleased to know, I hope, uh, has been presented in a couple of our grand rounds. Can you just outline that a little bit, please? Yeah, I guess this is... um In many ways, this is an ICU problem. It's not only an ICU problem, but in the field, like if you're decapitated or decomposing, like you're dead, obviously. Um, And if, you know, you get seven shocks or you're asystolic or we run the code, you know, normally paramedics will pronounce someone in the field. Even in the emergency department, I I can throw all the bicarb at you I want. At some point, I'm going to say I can't get your heart beating again and I'm going to pronounce you. But in the ICU, once you're on those machines, if you've made it that far, if you actually manage to have a pulse and get up the elevator to the ICU, you know, we can do amazing things to make sure that you don't die. That doesn't necessarily mean you're alive. And, and uh, I'll talk about the death dilemma equation, which, which really, Peter, I think falls partly on the societal transformation that's occurred over the last 50 years where we don't accept death um, as we used to. And part of it is, is probably something that we need to address when we talk about our own uh, setting of expectations and the way we glorify resuscitation in society and in medicine. We promise a lot. Sometimes we deliver very little. Um, and that promise is really this, this glorification of what we can do that sets an expectation that everything's going to be okay when that is far from assured. Um, and this is enabled by technology. If the technology wasn't there, we'd be making no promises, we'd be making no prognostication because that would just be the end of it. So I think 
we're looking at the societal shift towards death denialism, towards not wanting to die, towards thinking maybe even that you have the right to live forever. Not obviously nobody believes that for real, but I think they sort of in their brain and in their heart might act that way with this idea in medicine that, you know, with technology, we can go another day. Um, and there are little things we do that facilitate that. It's in our language. You know, I, I use the term micro-improvement a lot um, in the book. You know, we say things like their lactate went from seven to four, and I don't know why we tell family members that. I don't know what that means. I, I have no idea what that means as an intensivist. I don't know if that has something to do with their liver or the epinephrine infusion titrating. or like, I don't know what that means. We make it sound like a good thing, though. And so families call around. They get on WhatsApp, right? And they tell everyone, hey, guess what? Her lactate went down to four today. Uh, the white count went from 32 to 26. The creatinine went down from 600 to 500. I don't know what that means, but my point here, Peter, is that we're we're advertising uh, that we can do anything, that we can save people's lives with all of this technology, and right off the right out of the gate, we probably believe that. But at some point, it becomes clear that can't happen, um, or is unlikely to happen, and then we need to figure out what to do. Absolutely, and there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I I think we do live in this hit the target, miss the point world where we, as you mm. say, we say the lactates dropped a little bit, but the big picture gets ignored. Or, or as a medical profession, we pass it into such small areas. I, I'm just the kidney doctor. Don't ask me about right. about where we're actually going. Uh, you and I got to know each other when some of the more famous, infamous Canadian cases hit. The courts, yes, and, yeah. and so when you say nobody truly believes this, that, you know there were actually people stating that they didn't believe in brain death as a concept, and, mm -hmm. and that's a good point. And, and so people do believe it, people don't believe it. I, I find this within my own family, and they say, "Well, you know, of course I'm going to die one day," but they don't truly believe it. And we do keep people alive on mm -hmm. Christmas Day. Um, by turning up the, the pumps because that's what you do. So where am I going with all of this? I, I, I want to go back to your point about the value of death mm. and, and about what the dying are teaching us. There was a very yeah. powerful piece produced in The Lancet last year using the term the value of death and, in fact, using language that mm -hmm. isn't typically in medical journals. You know, Caitlin Doherty, I mean, if, if we're going to be provocative here, the lady who wrote Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, which is a fascinating read also about end of life, just a different industry, different profession. She talked to us about, it's going to sound a bit shocking, but home is where the corpse is. In other words, the, the value of... Um, somebody dying at home when, in fact, we now have a profession where 75-plus percent of Canadians die in hospital and, and over a quarter die in ICUs, and that's data from several years ago. You know, that there are two days in your life that are less than 24 hours, your birthday and your death day, and we celebrate one, and we're, we're very uncomfortable with what to do with the other, that mm -hmm. we've almost become fetishized about death. It used to be that mm -hmm. everybody had seen death and if I can be rude, nobody had seen sex, and now it's the absolute opposite. Um, and so, you know, you've included in your book, where do we go from here, or what should you do? So what should we do? Yeah, well, I'll turn to another famous Canadian intensivist, Deborah Cook, and her work on the Three Wishes Project. And I was recently at a conference of hers, and 
was sort of rejuvenated in this thought of the Three Wishes Project, where as someone's dying, you ask their family, you know, what would mean something to them? And so I tried that out the week after her conference in my own ICU, uh, which does not have a formal Three Wishes program. And I had I came to know this family quite well. We had decided that we were going to not use technology anymore to support someone's life. And I said, what would be meaningful at the end? And all they wanted was uh, fluorescent colors. He loved fluorescent colors. So the next day, the family showed up in hot pink and neon <laughs> yellow and brilliant blue. And I came with my very orange backpack, my neon orange backpack. And when I walked into the room with my backpack, the family was just overjoyed. They just thought, oh, even the doctor has neon today. Um, and that was uh, that in music, that mm-hmm. in music. We also played some Johnny Cash. And that was, for them, uh, a beautiful way to commemorate this incredible individual um, on that day where they lived for less than 24 hours, as you say, Peter. Um, there, there seems to be a disconnect, really, between us and the public, um, and and we've we've spoken about this somewhat in this podcast already. You know, I sometimes wish that it would be we don't have to be on the same page with family at the outset before ICU happens, but it would be nice just to at least be in the same <laughs> book. How, how do we address that? You know, uh, Peter, I think you've written about this, where, where the public get their education regarding resuscitation, ICU care, yeah. etc. There's really an over-promising um, in my mind. So I'm going to have to say three things, and it's very, very complicated, Leon, and, and you know that. Um, but I think the first thing that we do is, is we don't want to over-promise, but at the same time, we don't want to be too cocky with our prognostication. Sometimes we don't know. And I've had colleagues of mine say, um, why did you resuscitate this patient? obviously they're going to die. And I say, it's not obvious to me. It's likely, but it's not clear. It's not certain. It's not obvious. And I think each one of us as intensivists, we all have our own thresholds. You know, when is your max dose of Levo 50? And when is your max dose of Levo 30? And when is your max dose of Levo set to 10, right? And you say, that's my ceiling. Mm -hmm. Those are biases that we bring to this. And so the first part to answer your question, Leon, is to self-reflect on our own confidence, uh, right or wrong, around prognostication and around delivering promises. Because I think we get it wrong a lot as well. And so it's hard for me to go to families and say, you guys don't get it when I don't get it. As for families, mm. I think the next thing we have to do is really understand the, the bias and the systemic injustice that brings people to mm-hmm. a certain belief. A- and I'll start again with us. I had two identical, pa- and they weren't identical patients, sorry. Uh, their charts would have read identically. They came in on the same day. Mm-hmm. They were both post-arrest. Their MRIs basically looked the same. Their EEGs looked the same. Their clinical exam was the same. Their families were of the same religious background. One family mm-hmm. was overjoyed at my offer to not use technology. And the other family was terribly offended by it. And I approached those mm-hmm. families in the exact same way, I think. Uh, on handover... I was told, oh, well, obviously, it's because of their religion. And I said, but no, three days ago, another guy died. I withdrew his care, and they were overjoyed. Same religion, same family, same – it just – 
the similarities between the cases and my interactions with the families were so similar, but the way they chose to move forward were opposite. And so I think sometimes Mm -hmm. we do try to blame it on the family or simplify it and say, this is a family problem. They don't get it, but I don't even get it. And I went to school for 11 years to Mm -hmm. do this job. So I think, um, I, I think it gets a little bit tricky. And I also was really enlightened writing my book, speaking to people who, who brought about a perspective that some marginalized people might have, particularly uh, some black people in the black community who have said that they feel that they have been marginalized in society for so long. Mm. And then they come to the ICU and they're given a choice. Would you like something, i.e. technology, or would you not like it? And for the first time in that person's life, living in Canadian society, they feel like they're being given the opportunity to have access to something. When I heard that from a person who had experienced going through this ICU process with a loved one, like I, I, I was blown away. I had never thought of that perspective of where an entire life of being denied equity would lead you to suddenly think, this is my shot. Of course, I want what everybody else in this ICU is getting, uh, which is Mm -hmm. a technologically supported life. And so, this is super complicated, is my point here. And Mm -hmm. it requires us to dig really deep into what we've done over, over centuries in Canada. It sounds like it's where our biases meet, essentially, us and and our families. Yeah, but the good news, the good news in all of this is that when I show up into a situation, I'm starting my journey into interpreting this person's viability at a certain point, and their family is probably not starting at the same point as me. And so my job is to analyze the gap and be patient enough for us to go down the road together until the tracks merge. Mm-hmm. I can't bring them to where I'm at too fast, right? Unless I had like a supersonic magnetic train or something, right? Like it's good. Like they got to be on the horse and carriage and, and maybe they're on, maybe they're in a Maserati and they get there quickly, but they got to go on that journey for themselves. And I have to be there to support them. Just because I'm at a certain place in my journey doesn't mean the nurses are, doesn't mean my colleagues are, doesn't mean my consultants are, doesn't mean the family is. You know, prognostication is hard and there's a lot of gray in this area. And so we just have to respect that we're all on a different track, but trust that through communication and trust building, we can get to a place where the tracks merge and the right thing happens for that individual. That's very well put. Thank you, Peter. No, it's exceedingly well put. You know, a good podcast is one where you're hitting the go back 30 seconds button so that you can rehear <laughs> it. And I think there's a whole lot of stuff there. Blair, you've brought up a, a number of things for me to reflect deeply on, but it, you've really brought home the point that, you know, medicine is described as with, with the risk of being trite, the most humane of the sciences, the most scientific of the humanities. And you mm-hmm. have really brought home this idea that, well, mum taught me this, that that when humans aren't just machines to fix, they're gardens to tend. And y- your point made about disadvantaged people finally getting a choice, what a terrible shame the limited choices we give. We, we say, you, you can finally have a choice and the choice is a machine. Yeah. It, it's almost a bizarre punch in the gut that 
that that choice is is thought of as as a gift when really it can be a harm. It, this is so complicated, and you know, I I'm a privileged white guy, right? Like I make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year as a physician. Like I feel bad uh, being part of the problem here, and, and, and all I can do is is my very best to listen to every family, understand that they're all unique, understand that they're all coming from different experiences, and leaning into that as best as I can to uh, to go on this journey with them uh, when somebody is critically ill. And, and I think that's the word, that we go on a journey with people and the, the crazy, not enough beds, too many patients, high expectation background mm. prevents us going on that individualized journey. You know, even if you talk about people who are relatively very advantaged, what I feel I see on a daily basis is people who have worked themselves half to death until the age of, let's say, 65 or 70, and then they come in with painless jaundice or a ataxia that turns out to be a GBM in their brain. Yeah. And I say to them, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry, but there's nothing I have to offer at this point. Now, nothing I have to offer machines and tubes. I, I, right. I think your point about humanity should always be given in spades a cup of tea, holding somebody's hand, crying with them, encouraging their family to come mm -hmm. and visit, and all, all of those things that were sidelined during COVID. But, but I think there is almost that sense that people look you back in the eye and say, what do you mean I played by the rules? Right. <laughs> G give me something back in return. And yeah. I worry that the thing we have to give them back is, is, as you've pointed out, glorious and impressive and a technological marvel, but not a sociological marvel. I think we can thread the needle a little bit there, though. Um, you know, t a year ago, if I was consulted on somebody who had metastatic cancer who was septic, I would have said, why is someone with metastatic cancer coming to the ICU? And then last December, my dad was diagnosed with metastatic pancreatic cancer, and he lived for five months. And those five months were extremely important to my mom. They were extremely important to my sister. And if a month in, he had a gastric outlet obstruction or a little bit of sepsis or, uh, or you know, his port got infected and he needed 24 hours to leave a fed. Why not support him through that and give him another couple weeks, a couple months? We say, uh, you know, as a physician, I would say, well, they only have a few months to live. Well, wait a minute. A few months when you know you're about to die is extremely important. Um, and maybe the ICU is a place. Doesn't this sound crazy, Peter? <laughs> the ICU is a place for people who are dying of metastatic cancer. Maybe it is. Maybe, maybe 24 hours in the ICU is all they need. Um, maybe they just need to have some steroids for their glioblastoma, and then they have another week to do their will and leave some videos for their grandkids. I don't know. Though, you know, we have all these judgments around whether or not critical care is suitable for someone that's steeped in our own biases. And um, I just think that all of that is something that needs to be explored, uh, probably on another podcast <laughs> episode. Sorry, I don't mean to go off on a personal tangent there, but um, you know, who gets to come to the ICU? Who gets offered technology? Um, this is wild. And as someone who who graduated fellowship recently, I had to locum. I worked at not, uh, seven different ICUs. Oh my God, the threshold for who gets CRRT, the mm -hmm. threshold for who gets dialyzed, the threshold for who gets intubated was different at every single ICU. There's no consistency here. This really is a problem that we need to bear and, and not just say, you know, this is, uh, this is the way it is. You know, Blair, I don't think any of this is a diversion or a tangent. I think this is absolutely central to what mm. we do. And it is, after all, called an intensive care unit. Let's make every one of those words, including the middle one, 
actually mean something and intensively mm-hmm. care for people. Uh, you know what? One of the most powerful things somebody did when I mentioned my family story was they, instead of just nodding their head and saying, oh, I'm terribly sorry to hear that, they actually went deeper and they asked me the name of my mother and what did she like to do and what kind of a person was she? So I am very sorry for what you went through mm-hmm. with, with dad. Tell me about dad. What's What was dad's, is dad still with us or is he not with us? Blair? He passed away a few months ago. His name was John. Oh, sorry, Blair. But, you know. No, I appreciate you asking. I think it's really kind. Um, my dad played by the rules. When he was filling out his anesthetic checklist um, to have his um, endoscopic biopsy, he was asking me, you know, oh, do I have high cholesterol? I said, no, dad, you don't have high cholesterol. Oh, do I have high blood? I said, no, dad, you're, you are a perfectly healthy 76-year-old with the exception of the metastatic pancreatic cancer that we've just found out about. Um, he is the guy who is up on the roof um, fixing things because he doesn't want to pay someone else to do it. He was very frugal. He could fix anything. He was an electrical engineer by training and uh, understood very well because my book was published just before he was symptomatic. Uh, had read my book and actually would talk to me about it often uh, and would talk to me about the gaps in the book, right? As you know, it might be easy for me to make a decision, but when when you're Googling maid uh, and mm-hmm. when you're Googling palliative care and when you're Googling how do you die at the end of pancreatic cancer, um, my book was not uh, as um, comprehensive as he had hoped it would be. Um, but we had a wonderful care team at Sunnybrook Hospital that guided us through various surgeries and medical therapies, chemotherapy, and, and ultimately palliation. Oh, geez. I'm, I'm, thank you for sharing that with me. You've, you've put a human face on a topic that has to have a human face. Mm-hmm. I hope the rest of your family is managing as best as they can. And it sounds like you're keeping the memories alive and you're in charge of those, Blair. You keep those alive. The reason people are doing as well as they are is because they had five months to process things. And mm-hmm. um, as my mom would say, every day was the best day because it was another day. And so that was achieved because of um, a gastrojejunostomy, and uh, it was achieved because of chemotherapy, and it was achieved because of antibiotics at one point, and it was achieved because of a wonderful palliative care doctor who prescribed pregabalin, who prescribed mm-hmm. dilaudid, you know, uh, medical technology, you know, maybe not ventilators, but medical technology got my dad extra time. Um, enough so that he could officiate my wedding. Um, That's the value of medical technology, quite frankly. My dad married me to my husband um, on a winter's day because we knew he couldn't wait for the summer. Um, And he did it with an NG in his nose because the night before he called me vomiting and a CT showed a gastric outlet obstruction. And hepatobiliary surgeon at Sunnybrook, a brilliant man, very kind, put him in a taxi at 9 a.m. and sent him to the wedding venue with an NG in his nose and a syringe in his pocket and said, Blair, just like suck out a little bit of gastric juice before the ceremony and then send them back to me. I have the OR booked. You know, I I can say I've worked at other hospitals um, where someone with metastatic pancreatic cancer and a gastric outlet obstruction comes in and and they're not offered surgery. They're not offered that technology. And we would have lost four months of time if that had happened. Well, and Sunnybrook has been at the center of so many of those cases we've talked about. So it's it's lovely to hear. Mm. It's lovely to hear the other human side. You know what? I think you've 
truly define what life support is. You provided it, your mum provided it, John provided it to you, your husband provided it to everyone. I, you know, it's clearly there's more to life support than machines and tubes. I, I, mm-hmm. I could go on for hours. You and I will offline, I'm sure. I hope so. <laughs> we'll have you <laughs> back always. on. Leon, bef- before, uh, before we're all in floods here, why don't you uh, sign us off? Thank you, Blair. Blair, thank you so much. Thanks for sharing your thoughts and, and uh, stories and your, uh, your, your own experiences. It's given me a lot to reflect on. I really, really do appreciate your time with us. And uh, thanks for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me.